programs committed by the Israeli settlers in the occupied Palestinian village of Tormosia. 40% of all settlers moving to the West Bank settlements in 2021 were from the U.S. Tormosia's mayor of the Middle East side, 400 armed settlers had attacked the village. And while the Abdelaziz family were fortunate to escape them, of the other villagers are in mourning. Visiting Palestine this summer for the first time in 20 years, victim of these settler attacks, and they shared their accounts with the Middle East eye. People who attacked us are originally American citizens. They are proud of being American Israelis. Imagine being engaged in a pogrom and also fundraising. And when Palestine is free, and it will be free, when we exercise our legal and moral right to return, we will relish in knowing that this connection, while it was interrupted, was never lost. Until then, Palestine lives in each and every one of us and our children. The last two lines means long live Palestine, long live the resistance. Hello and welcome to episode 98 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you say never again, but now you're a part of a pogrom. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the palestinepod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional podcasts per week. It's called the Patreon Pod. A little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Okay. Welcome, Michael. Another week. Welcome. You just welcomed me to my own podcast. Wow, Palestinians no, this is so how I hospitable. Slowly push you out. <laughs> of the oh, I'm being pushed out of the pod. Well, oh. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, it, you know, it starts with "Oh, I welcome you," and then it and then it transitions into what? Like, what I don't know. Because who edits this without me? <laughs> <laughs> no, it would. It, nobody. <laughs> it would just be raw footage of me having technical difficulties for an yeah, hour. Yeah, you trying to get connected. <laughs> Still not even recording you. <laughs> or just recording the, the ghost of where you used to be. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't know. I, you were about to say Palestinians so hospitable. They invite you to your own place. <laughs> yes, I was. But then you were like, you're getting kicked off the pod. So <laughs> That was uh, funny. I don't know. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> I think our audience is confused. It's like, are they fighting? Like. <laughs> No, no, we're not, we're not fighting. We're never, we never fight. <laughs> um, yeah, well, don't say we never fight because then it sounds like you're being held captive. <laughs> okay, we fight like a normal amount of times. I don't know. We fight, that. but it's like regular. You know what I mean? Like it's totally, totally amount, totally like regular. Like however much you think I, is good, that's no, how much we do much, it. Yeah, however much is healthy. I was about to say, like, however yeah. much is a healthy amount. <laughs> That's like what we do. Enough, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> it's like a healthy amount. Yeah. 
And like everyone's fine at the end. <laughs> I feel like we're paying way too much attention to this. I was just kidding. Okay. Yeah, I feel like you feel defensive now. I do because I feel like I hurt feelings and I didn't want to. I thought it was, I thought it was just funny. Oh no, it's all good. So you know, Michael, I just got back from my family reunion. I do know that. Yes, eighty people. We were in North Carolina. It was jam packed three days. It, absolutely incredible. Far exceeded my expectations. I have some of the most wonderful people that are related to me that half of them I didn't even know. And it was just an opportunity to meet all these people and make these absolutely incredible connections. But the one thing I took away is that despite the fact that we have been outside of Palestine for however many generations now, I guess it would be one, two, three generations in my case, but in some of the family's cases, it's up to four generations. Everybody has maintained a very serious connection to Palestine, to the Arabic language, to culture. I had cousins who were playing Oud, who taught, who self-taught themselves Oud outside of Palestine. I had cousins who were singing traditional Palestinian songs. I had a cousin who taught the entire group how to Debka, especially for the youth who are in the third and fourth generation and have only seen Debka but don't actually know what the steps are. I had a cousin who had made a documentary film about Gaza who actually showed it. And the film is about our great-grandparents' house. So it's about how one of my great-uncles returns to Gaza after 40 years and visits his parents' house. And it's just a short film that takes him through the house. And he explains to us what he used to do in every room. And it, it left everybody completely in tears. It was absolutely incredible. We were... Is that- is that f- available for the public or is that just... It is. It's, it's it's on Vimeo, actually. So we can we can leave a link to it. It's my great uncle filming on his iPad. So it's shaky. <laughs> but it's that's part of, you know, the, the appeal of it as well. Because it's so, so, so just real and authentic and, and, and unfiltered. You said you we, had a couple of relatives who listened to the pod as well. Shout out your yes. relatives who are listeners. Thank yes. you so much. Yes, I had some some amazing cousins who are listeners and at least one who was a big fan of you, Michael. So <laughs> who came up to me specifically was like, where did you find this guy? And I was like, actually, just on the Internet. You know, you can get everything on the Internet. Okay, I don't know that that's the best way to sell me, but sure. I Amazoned him. <laughs> he came with uh, next day shipping. Like, okay, that doesn't that doesn't help, huh? Yeah, um, we're, in, we're so anti-capitalist. That's okay. <laughs> gave a speech at one of the events about Palestine and about the history of Palestine. Oh, you should share it. I would love to share it with with our audience here because it's really the culmination of like two years of work on the Palestine pod and then digging into my own family history. And so. I will share it today with the preface that I wrote it specifically with the third and fourth generation in mind, right? The speech is really to them. So here goes. If we are here today, it's not only because we share genetics and DNA, but because we share a common origin in a very special piece of land, a place called Palestine, Palestine. Gaza more specifically. Gaza, Ard al-Azza or Gaza, the land of dignity, as it is known by its inhabitants and all over the world. Our great-grandparents are from the Zaytun neighborhood in Gaza City. 
Zaytun is the commercial hub of Gaza, which itself has been one of the major bustling commercial hubs of Palestine and the region. So we are city people. To say Gaza is a beauty is insufficient. Gaza is by the sea. And if you find yourself in love with the beach, fresh fish, and nature, know that it's because we are all sea people from southern Palestine. Gaza has seen good days and bad. Most of what I know about Gaza in the 1950s, I owe to my Katahena and my Sidu Nadir. Though I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, every year since I was 16, we would go visit my beloved grandparents in Kuwait. While there, I would bombard them with questions about Gaza. Tatahena recalled fondly the family house, a big house with a lot of land. They had chickens, geese, ducks, big rabbits, a dog named Betsy, and a cat named Prince. She said my great-grandparents loved one another very much and that my great-grandfather was very gentle and caring with my great-grandmother and, quote, never said a word to upset her. My great-grandmother, in turn, always dressed the kids very well. Tata Fahima was very proud of her children. My Sidonadr, on the other hand, would tell me stories about a time of great freedom of movement. His father used to take the train from Gaza to Damascus for work, a trip which is not possible today due to the siege of our beloved land. After the Nekba, Sidu taught math to the newly arrived Palestinian refugees from the northern parts of Palestine in the refugee camps. Like many Palestinians, due to the political context, my grandparents were forced to leave Palestine and built a life elsewhere, in Kuwait to be exact. Then came the early 90s and the Gulf War. Our families were made refugees again and ended up in the U.S. Many of you remember this time more than me. I was only three. The youth here may not know this, but despite the exile we have experienced in the last couple of generations, we are all a part of Gaza's history. The Borno family, like the Ghalyini family, the Filfil family, the Suwan family, and the Al-Shurafa family, are some of the largest, most prominent families in all of Gaza. Our roots in the land are ancient and go back millennia. The history of Gaza and Palestine more generally is a deep, rich history of more than 4,000 years. Our land was inhabited and invaded by epic civilizations of whom we are all descendants. From the ancient people of the Mediterranean Sea to the Canaanites, the ancient Egyptians, the Philistines, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, and the Persians. And then the different Muslim empires, like the Arabs led by Umar ibn al-Khattab to the Umayyads, the Abbasids, and the invading crusaders driven out of the land by the fierce resistant Salah al-Din al-Ayyubi. Then came the Mamluks, followed by the Ottomans. These are our ancestors. The founder of the Borno family, Al-Amir Shamsuddin Aqush Al-Birli Al-Azizi, was a prince in the Mamluk state in the 13th century who defeated the Mughals in Ain Jalut near Bisan, Palestine. Our roots are deep, and we should all be very proud. We come from a deep lineage of resistors, defiant people. So defiant that there are verses in the Old Testament that are even full of supplications to destroy the pesky resisting people of Gaza. 
Alexander the Great, one of the most impressive fighters who would enter any land with ease, was stopped for two months on the walls of Gaza, unable to conquer because of the fierce resistance of our ancestors. Gaza witnessed a golden age during the Ottoman era. During World War I, Gaza was also an epicenter of resistance. Many years later, in perfect consistency with its revolutionary history, Gaza was the origin of the first intifada in 1987, this time resisting Zionist occupation. One of the Zionist leaders, Rabin, used to dream that he would awake one day to find that the sea had swallowed Gaza, a testament to the strength of Gaza and its people in the face of foreign domination. I have never been to Gaza. I tried to go once in 2010. I got close. I could actually see it as I stood at the Erez crossing, turned away by an 18-year-old Zionist soldier who shook her head and told me that I needed permission to enter Gaza. I scoffed at the notion. I told her permission from Gazans. They agree, of course. I'm here to visit my great-grandfather's house. I belong here. She replied, permission from Israel. In a moment of defiance to the settler colonial reality that has recently imposed itself on our land in the last 75 years, I responded with certainty. Why do I need permission from Israel to enter Gaza? I never made it to Gaza, but I won't stop trying. You see, like many of you, my mind routinely wanders to the what-ifs. What if the Ottoman Empire never fell? What if there was no British colonialism in Palestine? No Balfour Declaration? What if there was no political ideology called Zionism? What if, after World War II, Palestine, like all of the other parts of Bilad al-Sham, became its own independent state, a free Palestine next to Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan, a state for its inhabitants? Surely all of our lives would have turned out very differently. We most certainly would not have found ourselves in exile, and we would not have been scattered all over the world as refugees, many of us still stateless. Most importantly, we would have never been separated from our land, and we would have grown up not only family members united by blood, but neighbors and friends knowing one another deeply, making daily memories across generations. Though these questions at times consume me, I am filled with a lot of hope. This reunion is an act of resistance against the unjust reality of dispossession, separation, distance, ethnic cleansing, and apartheid that has been imposed on us and our land in recent years. But like our defiant ancestors, we too resist and have fought to keep our Palestinian identity alive. In just one day, I have learned many heartwarming stories about how Gaza and Palestine continue to live in all of us. I salute my cousin Hamish and our beloved Khalo Ahmad, Allah Yirhamu, for the incredible initiative of the Borno Foundation and the charity and efforts to reinvest in Gaza, and I know many of you are involved in similar efforts. I also salute my cousin Hashim for learning Oud, a traditional Palestinian musical instrument, and playing for us, Khalto Diana and Gigi for singing traditional Palestinian songs, and our cousin Karim, who this weekend will teach us the Palestinian Debka, our traditional dance. There are so many examples, and I won't do them justice. My sister Dana, not only a doctor, but one of the best Palestinian chefs I know. Nobody makes a better bezella or fasulia, but I make a better msachan. The love for our cuisine also brought my cousins and I together during COVID. I got on a Zoom call with Ruba and Hala and Khalturim to learn a typical Gazan fish dish, Samak Harra. There are many more examples. My hope is that we continue to build connections to our culture and our land. To the younger generation, Go to Palestine. Even if you can't go to Gaza, go to the West Bank and 48. You will be welcomed with open arms by your countrymen and countrywomen. 
When I visited the West Bank in 2010, I met the lovely Burnat family from the occupied village of Bilain. Connection was instant. You have to stay with us. We prepared your room. I stayed for weeks, played with the kids, learned to cook our food. It was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. The last few years for the Bernat family have been very difficult. Two of the boys that I played with when they were kids were arrested by the apartheid state, Muhammad and Abdul Khaliq. They were jailed without charge, and every six months, their court date gets pushed back. They're being punished for being Palestinian and remaining on their land, and have now been held for over one year. I tell this anecdote because I think it's important to remember that while we are in exile, we have to do what we can to support those on the ground. I call on the youth to look inside themselves and connect to Palestine using their skills and interests. Learn our history, ask your elders questions. In preparation for this speech, I called my dear uncle Shaban in Kuwait, a scholar and historian, to ask him about the 4,000-year history of Palestine. Learn to cook our dishes, dance our dances, sing our songs, and read our poetry. Use the benefit of social media to build connections with Palestinians on the ground. Most of my own Palestinian friends are fellow activists from Instagram. Make the most of this life we were blessed with. Alhamdulillah. And when Palestine is free, and it will be free, and we exercise our legal and moral right to return, we will relish in knowing that this connection, while it was interrupted, was never lost. Until then, Palestine lives in each and every one of us and our children. Tahya Palestine, Tahya al-Muqawama. The last two lines, Tahya Palestine, Tahya al-Muqawama, means long live Palestine, long live the resistance. That was a good speech. Thank you. I hope I inspired the youth. So people told me I did, so I take them for <laughs> I believe them, but that, that's that's what I was trying to do. So you're just going to make me cry? Are you crying? Are you really crying? If I made you cry, I'll be so happy. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's not great, right? <laughs> People are definitely going to think we're fighting if that's how you feel. <laughs> no, because it means it was touching. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a great speech. It just came together, right? Like the whole thing came together and it just kind of, it was so solid. You know, there was no like... Yeah, there are some kids that don't speak Arabic, but there's a lot to do. And it's like, you can see the effort to hold on. You can see the effort being made to just grasp on to this culture and this identity because of the circumstances that led to our removal from this land and how we never wanted that to happen. And so there is this active attempt being made despite being in exile. And it's really a beautiful thing to see. And I just I just hope that, you know, the story ends with with us going back because, you know, we, we talked about it. Like we talked about it with our cousins, like, oh, like when, you know, if, when we get to go back, like there is this is still very much a part of the Palestinian identity and experience is like the when we get to go back and we're going to. We're going to hope, you know, we're going to restore our great grandparents' house. And that'll be like the center of, of, of you know, what, where we build our houses and, you know, making plans for this future. And like, we don't know if it's going to be in two years or in 10 years or in 20 years, but like, we're re getting ready to go back. And, and that gave me a tremendous amount of hope. Yeah. You said long live the resistance. Speaking of which, the occupation launched a what it thought would be a regular attack against the occupied Janine refugee camp 
And what happened was they got their ass handed to them. There were Palestinian fighters who destroyed seven armored vehicles. And there's a number of videos circulating Twitter that you can see where they were blown to smithereens by IEDs. The occupation had to send in tractors to tow away the column of decimated trucks jeeps and armored personnel carriers there's a great thread by richard medhurst that details with all of the videos the highlights by janine's resistance the occupation actually had to send in aerial support because they were getting so thoroughly smashed on the ground so shout out janine i've also been um watching very closely what's been happening in Janine and, and in parallel watching as Israeli settlers in various communities in the occupied West Bank invade and attack Palestinians in their homes, entire families, set entire communities on fire, destroying hundreds of vehicles, properties, trying to light on fire homes with Palestinian families in them literally trying to set Palestinian children on fire. They're doing this day after day in, 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 in all different Palestinian villages. I just saw a video on Middle East Eye of a woman, Palestinian woman, whose husband was murdered in an arson attack by Israeli settlers because he was trying to evacuate his home of the children and the other elderly relatives and the settlers had set the home on fire and he managed to evacuate everybody, but he couldn't save himself. And so he was burned to death. And the woman is his wife. She was giving an interview explaining how her husband went in and he went in, he didn't, he didn't stop going in until every last person was out, but he couldn't save himself. I don't think I've heard one single Western media organization report on this story. I don't think I've heard a single condemnation from from any head of state. Yeah, this is tragic. This it's this man faster. died as a result of a pogrom led by Jewish emphasis on the air quotes Jewish settlers. I want to share some accounts of some of the Palestinians who were victim of these pogroms. So we already talked about the Palestinian woman whose husband was victim of an arson attack while he was trying to uh, rescue those family members who were stuck inside the building. I want to also share the accounts of the Abdulaziz family, who are Palestinian Americans. And what's interesting about their story is that they've actually returned to Palestine for the first time in over 20 years. They're actually visiting Palestine this summer for the first time in 20 years. And were actually um, victim of these settler attacks, and they shared their accounts with the Middle East Eye. Twenty-year-old Amal Olfat, who's a pharmacy student in Chicago, is now in the village of Tormasia and shared her account. She said that she was doing homework on Wednesday afternoon when she heard loud noises in the street outside of the house. And she and her older sister, Noor, went out to the porch of their home to see what was happening. It was a near-fatal mistake. She saw a mob of approximately 50 Israeli settlers moving from house to house, many with guns in their hands and wearing black face masks, attacking everybody they saw. 
She saw them attack a Palestinian man tending to his garden, and then they saw her. The mob zeroed in on her and her family. In a panic, she said that she ran to the basement for protection. We truly thought that this was our last day on Earth, she said. I thought I wouldn't reach my 21st birthday. Meanwhile, her newly married sister Noor was texting her husband. She said, if this is the last time I see you, I love you and I hope to see you in the afterlife. Like This is happening while settlers are moving in on their house, wearing face masks, lighting everything in their path on fire and attacking everything that they see. They called the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem in a desperate plea for help. No reply. While they were still hiding in the basement, the settlers were setting fire to the house above them. If it hadn't been for some brave men in the village who came in and took out a burning couch, the whole house would have burnt down. The damage was everywhere. Smashed windows and scorch marks on the grill separating the porch from the main house. The family's car parked outside was burnt to a cinder by the settlers. The father, who works as a teacher in Chicago, said, This was an intentional attack. The scariest part is that the people who attacked us are originally American citizens. They are proud of being American Israelis. So, like, hold on just a second. Palestinian Americans return to their village for the first time in 20 years. They're separated from their village because of the establishment of Israel and the occupation of Israel, occupation by Israel of their land. They decide to go back in any event, despite the occupation, and say, no, this is our land. This is our house. We're going to go back. We're not going to be intimidated by these settlers that are trying to drive us out of our land. They go. They're attacked by settlers with black face masks that are burning everything in their path. And those settlers themselves are also American. But they came there to settle, whereas the Palestinians were forcibly made American, not because they want to be American, but because they were kicked out by these settlers who were originally American. They are on the same flight back. It's weird, though, because like the settlers themselves are American. The Palestinians were forced to become that as a result of being expelled from their lands by these other Americans. Yeah. It's weird. It's not great. Father said, back in the U.S., we could have been neighbors. They were unable to, to verify the identities of the settlers responsible for the attack, but they did hear them speaking in American English, so that's how they know. Yeah. Well, there were more Palestinian Americans who were actually affected in this pogrom as well. But this story is interesting because this individual is a state representative in Illinois. Yeah. R Illinois Rep. Rashid was among those threatened by armed American Zionist settlers during the pogrom recently. So the Haaretz reported that 40% of all settlers moving to the West Bank settlements in 2021 were from the U.S. So a sizable portion of those settling on occupied land in Palestine are actually Americans. According to an estimate from 2016, American citizens account for about 15% of the total settler population. But this is clearly increasing because of the data that we see from last Sud Masiya's mayor told the Middle East side that about 400 armed settlers had attacked the village. And while the Abdelaziz family were fortunate to escape them, some of the other villagers are in mourning. 27-year-old Omar Hicham Jibra rushed into a restaurant to warn his family members that settlers were starting to rampage through the village and was eventually shot twice in the chest. 
he was married with two young children. At a press briefing in Washington, a State Department spokesperson was asked what tangible measures the U.S. government was taking to prevent further attacks on Tormosia, given the presence of U.S. citizens and extensive U.S.-owned property in the village, because there's quite a lot of Palestinian Americans that continue to hold property there and are from there. And the spokesperson said, we continue to engage on this issue. We take steps through dialogue, through our engagement in the region. What are you engaging? A fucking <laughs> throttle of a tank? Like, what are you talking about? Okay, no, but uh, I need to read this because I, you need, I need to say something about this. So he said, "We, I'm reading it from the from the top. We continue to engage on this issue directly. We take steps through dialogue, through our engagement in the region, through raising this directly with Israeli officials as well as officials in the Palestinian Authority." So. We're talking about 400 armed, masked men invading a village, which they occupy, and their presence there is illegal under international law. And they're trying to burn down as much property and kill as many people as possible. And the U.S., only words they could muster are that we continue to engage, and not only really engage with the perpetrators to get them to stop, but just engage in the region. Like engagement in Yemen or engagement in Saudi is somehow going to reach these Palestinians who are trying not to be murdered by 400 masked armed men who have the protection of the state, which itself has the protection of the U.S. It's kind of... I wouldn't even say it's a weak statement. It's just not even a relevant statement. When I go to the doctor... He's like, what region are you feeling pain in? Is it a is it a regional issue? Is it show me show me on yourself on the map where it hurts? You know, like <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. Everybody knows that the first step to Palestinian liberation is to fix Syria. No, but truly, what's interesting is you are seeing a lot of people in the Golan Heights fighting back against the occupation. You're seeing Lebanese people stand tall against the occupation as the occupation is trying to gobble up more land. You're seeing a united front of resistance from everybody against the occupation, which is cool. I want to add one more thing about Ogrim and Tormosia. Odeh Jibra, who is a cousin of Omar, the individual who was killed by the settlers, was also in Tormosia. He had returned to attend the marriage of his brother-in-law. And the marriage was actually set to take place on the day of the attack. Instead, he describes how him and his wife, Badria, and his four-year-old daughter, Hiam, and other family members were trapped in a burning house because the settlers had blocked the drive with burning cars. So they're in the house, which is burning and they can't get out because right in front of the door is also a bunch of burning cars, which is making their escape impossible. He said he was forced to climb over a three meter wall to reach his family members in a house that was already full of smoke as settlers threw stones at him. And then he said, I don't know how I did it all. I lost fear in the crisis. He added that his daughter asked him, please take me back to California. She's now too frightened to sleep alone in her own room. When I tell my cousins, like, don't, don't let the connection with Palestine suffer. Keep going. It's your land. Like, this is where I'm telling them to go to. Like, you might be attacked by settlers. You might be lit on fire. But we have to keep going because it is our land. And even though nobody's protecting us, 
that's the risk that we have to take because they stole our land and it's not right. It's just not right. It's it's immoral. It's illegal. It's unjust. And we're not going to go down without a fight. One of my cousins told me at the reunion that he has land deeds to our land in Gaza. He says his land deeds go back hundreds of years. And he goes, I have all the documents because our great grandparents' house ended up being um, passed along to him when his father died. So now he's the one who owns it. And he says, I have all the documents. I have all the property documents, the deeds, everything that shows that we're owners of this land. Every Palestinian family has the same thing. So why would you expect that they're just not going to remain on the land that they own? That is their land that's been in their land in their families for centuries and millennia. It's it's an absurd notion and it's a false premise. And so even though that's what we are walking into when we decide to go to Palestine, it's the only logical choice. We must continue to go to Palestine. We can't we can't not go because it's our land. The Zionists are trying to instill fear in Palestinians to the point where they don't want to go. And I mean, you see that as evidence in the little girl who is like, take me back to California, right? For her, like she may never want to go back because she was the victim of a pogrom and so yeah my ancestors fled pogroms too and didn't go back and yeah that's understandable that's like yeah. the the natural reaction to being victim of a pogrom is being like oh maybe i shouldn't be here in the last week we have seen over 85 settler attacks in the last week as reported by Middle East Eye on June 26, they said that Israeli settlers have carried out more than 85 attacks against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank in the last week. And let's be clear, the Palestinian Authority is doing absolutely nothing to protect people either, right? The Palestinian Authority has guns. They have guys who have guns. They're just kind of sitting on their thumbs right now while Palestinians are being assaulted, victimized, and the victims of pogroms by, you know, Zionist settlers. Yeah. There was, I saw there was a guy who was like, you know, basically either protect us or give us guns. Exactly. <laughs> right. Cause what's the alternative? Just let us just, just die. Like, accept yeah. us to ex- expect us to accept to just be murdered. With our families like that's is that what you think we're going to do is that what you would do nobody would do that nobody would do that nobody would accept that for themselves and that's what i always say about people who have anything to say about palestinians resisting in any in any capacity you would never accept this for yourself or for your family so why do you think we should i've been trying to say give them guns if you've listened to the podcast for the last two years <laughs> you know that i'm pro giving palestinians guns I mean, at the end of the day, it just goes back to this. Israel's a nuclear power. They have nukes, and they're an occupying power. And they're an apartheid state. And we, Palestinians, are on our land. And we are face-to-face with tremendous amount of power and domination that is sole purpose is to try to get us off our land with all of that power that they have. And then add to that the impunity, right? The power and the impunity, they go hand in hand. You can do whatever also, they want. the only reason that Zionist settlers are so bold that they come shooting in Palestinian neighborhoods is because nobody shoots back, right? Right. There aren't guns. And so the second that there were guns in the situation, you would not see the Zionist settlers coming in and rampaging as, you know, often and exactly. brutally as they do. 
because they know they have the protection. First of all, they have the advantage of having guns when most Palestinians don't, right? Then on top of that, they have the added protection of the army behind them. So it's like, if the stones get to be too much, then they'll let the soldiers intervene, right? But it's like, if ever there was a slight bit of equalization between like the ability to fight, dog, they'd be gone. They'd be back on a plane because one of them got shot. They would never let Which is why they lobby every single day to make sure that Palestinians get nothing but like a tiny bit of medical aid. Right. Whereas they are often and always gifted more and more money. Miko Pellet just announced that they were a special envoy was gifted more money. Like in the Uh, middle of a pogrom, even in the middle of a pogrom, they're like, can we get more money? What? And then the U.S. is like, sure. Imagine being engaged in a pogrom and also fundraising. Like, talk about going door to door. Yeah. That's a that's a campaigning joke. And yeah. a uh, pogrom joke. In one. Yeah. We um, call that a twofer. <laughs> so the Middle East I reported that the U.S. has decided to stop funding Israeli science and tech projects in the occupied West Bank. This decision reverses a Trump-era policy allowed U.S. taxpayer funding for research in Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. Type of research you think they got going on in the West Bank? I don't know. Also, what 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 is the vibe if we're doing research on occupied peoples? I don't know. Who did that? I don't know. What does that sound like? I don't know. It sounds so familiar <laughs> from a Jewish perspective to hear people doing science on other people. Hey, mm, look, it's I just it's it's so hard to remember what that was. Yeah. Well, apparently it's, it's like it's like YouTube will demonetize us if I remember what that was. JK, we're not monetized. But it just feels like, yeah, it feels like we'll get censored if I remember what that was. Literally. Apparently, this latest move reverses a Trump policy decision from late 2020, which itself had reversed a decision to not allow research to take place in Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank for the first time since 1967. So basically... From 1967 and on, that had not been allowed until Trump comes along in 2020, reverses that, and then now we're going back to the pre-Trump policy. And the specific settlements that are at issue here are the illegal West Bank settlements of Ariel, which was built on 1978 on land stolen from Palestinians uh, in specifically the Palestinian villages of Salfit, Iskaka, Marada, and Kifil Haris. The site that we're talking about is now actually an Israeli university. And that Israeli university was the chosen venue for round of scientific cooperation between the U S and Israeli researchers. So basically that's, what's at issue here in this policy. Now, going back to your question of what exactly they're doing, I don't have the answer to that question because the article doesn't say anything about that, but it is just vaguely categorized as science research. That's shady, right? <laughs> right? Like, that seems very weird. 
science yeah. research. Don't ask any more questions. Well, hey, now they can't do that. Well, they can. Still well, with do the taxpayer research, money is, but the U.S. won't pay for that specific thing. Yeah, it's not like they'll they're going to stop. No, they'll pay for research in forty-eight, though. So, I mean, whatever. Right. What is? What's the difference? Um. Well, the difference yeah. is is that some people draw a line at sixty-seven, and then some people don't. Right is the difference. Recent revelation by Israel State Archives shows that the Zionist militias attempted to recruit Nazis to fight against Britain. Newly unveiled transcripts from Israeli State Archives reveal that attempts were made by Zionist militias to enlist Nazi Germany in their battle against the British Mandate authorities in Palestine. The transcripts were released to the public last month and include the interrogation of Ephraim Zettler, a member of the Lehi Zionist militia, those militias that committed the Nakba of Palestine. He was kidnapped by Haganah fighters in 1942, another one of the Zionist organizations that committed the Nakba of Palestine. Zettler told the interrogators, we will communicate with any military power ready to help with the establishment of the Kingdom of Israel, even if it's Germany. The only condition is that we get weapons so we can rebel against the English. If Germany agrees to help us fight enemy number one, the English will team up with it. He continued saying about Germany, quote, it's not an enemy of the Jews in Israel. That's a direct quote. Yeah, I have some passages actually I've been waiting to talk about uh, from a book called The Secret Contacts. It's The Secret Contacts, Zionism and Nazi Germany, 1933 to 1941. And here is a passage from that book. The attitude of Zionists towards the encroaching menace of fascist domination in Germany was determined by some common ideological assumptions. The fascists, as well as the Zionists, believed in unscientific racial theories and both met on the same ground in their beliefs in such mystical generalizations as national character and race. Both were chauvinistic and inclined towards racial exclusiveness. Thus, the Zionist official Gerhard Holdheim wrote in 1930 in a edition of the Sudinch, it's a German publication. I'm not going to try. A publication in which, amongst others, leading anti Semites aired their views. So, like the Fox News of their day, the Zionist program encompasses the conception of a homogenous, indivisible Jewry on a national basis. The criterion for Jewry is hence not a confession of religion, but the all-embracing sense of belonging to a racial community that is bound together by ties of blood and history and which is determined to keep its national individuality. That was the same language, the same phraseology as the fascists used. No wonder then that the German fascists welcomed the conception of the Zionists, with Alfred Rosenberg, the chief ideologue of the Nazi party, writing, 
quote, Zionism must be vigorously supported so that a certain number of German Jews is transported annually to Palestine or at least made to leave the country. Then I, on such statements, Hans Lamm later wrote, quote, it is indisputable that during the first stages of their Jewish policy, the National Socialists thought it was proper to adopt a pro-Zionist attitude. The Zionists saw that only the anti-Semitic Hitler was likely to push the anti-Zionist German Jews into the arms of Zionists. The best part about this article by the Hot Ritz was that not only does it reveal... Let's not find a best part about the Nazi okay. article. No, no, no. I mean, it's, okay. Okay, let me rephrase this. Another very interesting piece of history that comes out of this Haaretz article and this and this uh, investigation into these recently released archives is that Haaretz also reveals information that dispelled the Zionist narrative of Palestinian collaboration with Nazi Germany. Because you know what Zionists always say is, oh, yeah, well, uh, we took their land, but that's fine because they supported Nazi Germany, right? That's right. They the, often the, they often show yeah. a picture of I think it's Al Hussein meeting with Hitler. And I just want to say that the Holocaust Museum itself has commented on this photo and said that it's not shown in the Holocaust Museum because it's culturally insignificant and Palestinians played no part in supporting the holocaust but it's something that zionists love to show it's like he one of Al they have photos al husseini al al yes yeah uh sorry al husseini met with hitler sorry i forgot the guy's name who met with hitler um <laughs> well no and, he was a palestinian mufti of jerusalem he wasn't like trying to meet with hitler he was just he literally sought asylum in germany to escape the british because he was he had to leave palestine like that's it right. that's that's the only reason he ends up there it's not because he was like trying to be with hitler yes and anyways the zionists will often use that photo many of them have it framed in their rooms the way people have michael jordan's dunk photo and they will just like try and blame palestinians for the holocaust which is an insane revisionist history that's very disrespectful and even the Holocaust Museum agrees. So if you're ever seeing somebody use that photo as a way to, you know, blame Palestinians for anything that happened in Europe, you can reference the Holocaust Museum. More collaboration between Nazis and Zionists. The higher echelons of the Nazi party allowed various kinds of political activity in this regard. For example, Bavarian political police noted on July 9, 1935, the Zionist organizations have for some time been collecting donations from their members and sympathizers with the intention of promoting emigration, the buying of land in Palestine, and the gaining of support for settlement in Palestine. These collections do not require government permission as they are held in closed Jewish circles. Moreover, on the part of the state police, there is no objection against these arranged meetings since they deal with such funds as are meant to promote the practical solution of the Jewish problem. After 1933, the fascists permitted the Zionists to continue with their propaganda. 
while all the newspapers in Germany were placed directly under the supervision of the Ministry of Propaganda, the newspapers published by communists or social democratic party or trade unions and other progressive organizations were banned, the Zionist Judish Rundschau was allowed to appear unhindered. Winfred Martini, the then fucking fantastic name, Winfried Martini, the then correspondent in Jerusalem of the Deutsche Allemein Zeuten. Honestly, that was a shot in the dark, but it's probably pretty good. Uh, my our German listeners can let me know. Who, according to his own testimony, had close personal ties with Zionism, remarked later on the paradoxical fact that of all papers, it was the Jewish, quote, Zionist press that for years retained a certain degree of freedom, which was completely withheld from the non-Jewish press. He added that in the Jewish Rundschau, there was very frequently to be found a critical view of the Nazis without this in any way leading to a banning of the paper. Only with the end of the year 1933 onwards did it lead to a ban on selling this paper to non-Jews. The Jews should, according to the wish of the fascists, be converted to Zionism even if this were done with arguments directed against the fascists. In this fashion, the circulation of this Zionist paper, which had until then been small, underwent a rapid swing upwards. The first days of Nazi domination in Germany also brought about the beginning of economic collaboration between fascists and Zionists. In May 1933, the Zionist Citrus Planted Company Henoti in Palestine was already applying to the Reich Ministry, the economy for permission to travel capital from Germany, thereby paving the way for the Haavra Agreement that later came. The Hanoti bought the German goods that it required, paying for them from the German bank account of Jewish immigrants. The immigrants then left Germany and received the equivalent value of payments in real estate. As the experience is of Hanoti seemed successful to the Zionist leaders. Negotiations were carried out in the summer of 1933 between the Zionist side and the German Nazi Ministry of Economy, leading to the signing of the Haavra Agreement. The Haavra negotiations of 1933 were one of the occasions of Zionist history over which a veil has been drawn, since they constituted an instance of economic cooperation at a time when anti-fascist forces were attempting to lead a boycott against Nazi Germany. In commenting on these efforts, Nahum Goldman, who then occupied a leading position in the Zionist movement, later wrote, however many Jewish groups refused to participate in the boycott, either because many Jewish firms happen to be business agents of German enterprises or because some Jewish organizations, namely those in the United States, took up the position that it was unpatriotic to organize a boycott against a country with whom one's country maintained normal trade relations. Those who broke the boycott were in the first place the Zionists themselves. So there's a ton more to this book and we'll be referencing it in the future as well. But you know how sometimes we see at these like, you know, protests or riots, we see people who have a uh, like a neo-Nazi flag and also they have a Zionist Israeli flag. 
And sometimes they are the same people. And then sometimes 400 of those people get together and go door to door. So that's the problem, folks. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Go ahead and find our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Check us out on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and look for us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. That's been another episode of the pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.